Today on Understanding Immigration, the purge at EOIR. Then of course, after I was dismissed, there were a number of private bar attorneys who came out on Twitter and said that they were specifically engaged in a campaign uh, right. to crowdsource complaints <laughs> uh, against constitutional conservative immigration judges. Yeah, Again, openly admitted, hey, we're going to just flood the process with complaints. You know, hopefully some of them stick. Or we can kind of send the message to the people under our sway in the administration and they do what they want. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. So back when I was a relative newbie here at FAIR, uh, I had the opportunity to work under a great guy named Matt O'Brien. Matt came to FAIR from USCIS, where he was the chief of the National Security Division within the Fraud Detection and National Security Directorate. In short, his job was to create procedures that helped prevent terrorists and other national security threats from gaming our immigration system. He also has just a wealth of experience as a private attorney. And until about a month ago, Matt was doing a great job as an immigration judge over at uh, EOIR, but in a rather shocking and unprecedented move, he, along with a number of his peers, were let go by the Biden administration because they had the absolute audacity to rule in a manner that's consistent with our current immigration laws. Because, you know, how dare a judge do his job correctly? Now he's actually the director of investigation at FAIR's uh, legal arm, the Immigration Reform Law Institute. I'm Spencer Raley, FAIR's Director of Research, and joining me for this episode is the legend himself, Matt O'Brien. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Spencer. So, Matt, uh, tell us about your experience as an immigration judge and compare your performance to what the Biden administration was basically requesting or demanding from immigration judges. Sure. Well, first off, thank you for the warm welcome. Mm -hmm. And um, the EOIR stands for the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is the name of the immigration court. It's an administrative court, which is part of the executive branch. Uh, so it's a little bit different than the courts that most people are used to seeing on television, right. like Law and Order. It's not part of the judicial mm -hmm. branch. And what its function is, is to review immigration decisions so that people have a fair shot at applying for benefits that they, they might have under the immigration laws. Uh, which means that in the case of illegal aliens or in the case of people who have violated their immigration status, the same things that are at stake in a, in a judicial branch court, like a criminal court or a civil court, are, are just not present. What right. this is is a simple question, did you violate the law? And if you violated it, is there some provision in the law that allows you to stay? So it should be pretty straightforward, but right. the immigration courts have become increasingly more politicized, and particularly with the Biden administration, even more so than the Obama administration, there's been a lot of pressure put on people working all across DHS and the Department of Justice to uh, approve basically any application that any alien uh, puts forward. So mm -hmm. uh, it started off under the Trump administration as a very fascinating job. There was a lot of interesting uh, enforcement initiatives going on. As soon as the Biden administration took over, uh, it, it became a slog. And there right. was just consistent pressure uh, being put by the administration, but also by the Trade Association for the Immigration mm -hmm. Attorneys on the judges who were willing to apply the law correctly. 
uh, because people, you know, would come in and make these absurd claims that because they were the victim of a crime in mm-hmm. a foreign country, they were entitled to asylum. Which, of course, asylum covers certain protected classes, and experiencing crime in your home country is not a you know, does not qualify for asylum in the United States. Correct. So asylum is applicable to people who are fleeing persecution, mm-hmm. uh, which persecution just doesn't mean that you're experiencing right. bad conditions. Mm-hmm. It means that the government or parties the government is unable or unwilling to control in your country have targeted you on the basis of race, religion, uh, national origin, uh, political opinion, and essentially, if you don't fall within one of those five protected grounds, you don't meet the requirements for asylum. But there was right. a lot of uh, creative lawyering under the Obama administration to try and bring into the asylum statute people who were experiencing things like gang violence or domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, that was brought in under particular social group. And what a particular right. social group is, no one really knows because it's not defined <laughs> in either the uh, UN Convention on the uh, Treatment of Refugees, um, and it's not defined in any of the U.S. legislation that implements the UN obligations. Right. And so what you have is this sort of generic thing that could be virtually anything, and people try and bootstrap these asylum arguments by saying, my ex-husband persecuted me because I'm a woman and a person in half a marriage, which is a particular social group, which Mm -hmm. if you think about it, it's absurd because you can shoehorn virtually anybody into that category. Right. You can essentially say if anyone ever looked at you wrong, that's a form of persecution. So, and of course, if there wasn't a real clear definition of it, you know, it, it was just rife and ready for, for abuse and to be manipulated. Now, I've seen your metrics, you know, your your rulings and everything. They're very, very consistent with the law as it's written. Yet, as we mentioned, you know, the Biden administration let you go and a number of other judges go as well. So what what was their reason, like, you know, official on paper reason for letting you go? And were any of the other how many other judges were fired as well? And were any of them appointed by anyone other than a Republican president? I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, so. If, if one was a suspicious type, one might draw some <laughs> negative conclusions from what happened. But uh, uh, another judge in Arlington, Judge uh, David White, a mm-hmm. colleague of mine, very, very bright guy, very knowledgeable about immigration and very enforcement-minded, um, was let go with me. Right. Uh, there was a total of somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen. We, can't, we haven't been able to get any straight answers from the administration. Which, that sounds maybe like a small number, but it's really unprecedented, isn't it? So typically speaking, immigration judges start, depending upon what statute is in effect at the time, they Mm -hmm. undergo either a year or two years of probation. Uh, When I was hired, it was two years. And the probationary period is to make sure that you have appropriate demeanor in the courtroom, that you're familiar with the law, uh, that you don't have emotional outbursts and yell at people, things of that nature. Um, And so typically people are only kept from being converted to, and the way the probation works, I should go back and say, Mm -hmm. is you're appointed for a a temporary appointment that matches Mm -hmm. the probation period. And then once you've completed probation, you're converted to a permanent position. And 
in the past, there's been virtually nobody who wasn't taken off of probation. You had people mm -hmm. that, um, you know, there was a judge, a uh, famous case, who was falling asleep on the bench in the middle of cases and waking <laughs> up and then insisting on going on with the cases. He was not taken off of probation. Uh, you know, there are other people who had tardiness and alcoholism issues. Mm -hmm. It's all identifiable things. Um, and what happened to the people who were Trump appointees who worked into the Biden administration on their probationary period uh, is they were given a, a notice that said, uh, you're not being converted to permanent. Uh, and this is based on a review of performance and or conduct. Now, to a lot of people listening who aren't familiar with how the federal government works, they might go, well, clearly there was a performance or a conduct issue. But in the federal government, in order to dismiss somebody, you really have to specify some kind of specific shortcoming that they right. had. And performance and or conduct does not cut it under the federal rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, if you think about that, that's a monument to bad grammar because was it performance? <laughs> was it conduct? Was it both? Was it mm -hmm. neither? And, and it's it's conveniently inspecific as well. Correct. And nothing was ever pointed out to right. us. Um, mm -hmm. The only thing that, that was you know brought to our attention is that there apparently was a deputy attorney general who thought that nobody should ever have a complaint filed against them. Mm -hmm. And um, you know pretty much every sitting immigration judge, because EOIR's complaint process is so all-encompassing and wide-ranging, right. has complaints filed against them. Um, I denied a continuance uh, from someone who didn't provide any evidence, which is clearly required under the regulation that right. governs continuances, and she filed a complaint. Mm -hmm. So I had a sum total in two years of four complaints filed against me, all of which were dismissed as baseless and frivolous. Um, and this is pretty typical. Most of mm -hmm. the, the judges that were dismissed either right before or along with me um, had the same sort of thing happen. Um, then, of course, after I was dismissed, there were a number of private bar attorneys who came out on Twitter and said that they were specifically engaged in a campaign uh, right. to crowdsource complaints <laughs> uh, against constitutional conservative were, immigration judges. Yeah, I saw some of these. Uh, I saw some of these uh, tweets. I mean, from lawyers and groups like Ayla, who straight up basically admitted that their complaints were politically motivated. They weren't, they had nothing to do with your performance. They were just mad that they weren't getting the rulings that they liked. And so they, again, openly admitted, hey, we're going to just flood the process with complaints. You know, hopefully some of them stick or we can kind of send the message to the people under our sway in the administration and they do what they want and get what they wanted, which was to get uh, judges who are ruling in a consistent manner with the law removed from the bench. So that kind of brings up another question I have here, and that is uh, why do groups like AILA have so much sway with this administration, and how is this tactic of flooding the process with complaints legal, or is it legal? Well, so first of all, I should say, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this, AILA is the American Immigration right. Lawyers Association. Right. That is the, the trade association mm -hmm. for private bar immigration attorneys who represent uh, aliens in immigration proceedings. Um, and that's another funny thing. We got a memo saying we shouldn't call them aliens anymore, despite and the fact that that's the term used the term is in, the <laughs> in the Constitution and, mm -hmm. and in the relevant statutes. Um, well, I find the interesting thing with AILA is you know, they used to kind of the idea was to represent attorneys on both sides of the spectrum, make sure that the you know all these cases are being uh, 
you know, adjudicated in a fair manner. It doesn't seem to be that way anymore. It seems to largely be a, a heavily one-sided organization, just from what I can see. Well, it's always been one-sided in that it was the trade uh, organization for the private uh, immigration bar. So they never really right. did anything on behalf of any of the, the INS and then later mm -hmm. ICE attorneys uh, who were responsible for, for prosecuting the cases. Uh, but once upon a time, they, they were kind of evenly divided among the immigration mm -hmm. attorneys that do business immigration and the immigration attorneys that do family-based and the people that uh, represent people in proceedings before the mm -hmm. immigration court. It seems to have shifted radically left and to be primarily driven now by people who think that there should be an open borders world right. with no immigration rules. Right. And, uh, you know, going back to your earlier question, uh, what's the end game here? Well, I think it's that the Biden administration wants to flood the United States with as many immigrants as possible because they think that anyone who is is ultimately here and gains a path to citizenship as a result of the Democratic Party's mm -hmm. efforts are going to wind up voting Democrat. And if they can right. do this correctly, then they will be able to shift the demographics of the company and ensure mm -hmm. Democrat rule, if not in perpetuity, excuse me, perpetuity, but at least for decades. Um, and, and I personally think, and I, I've discussed this with a number of other people uh, that I know that still work at ICE and USCIS and on the court, and one of the arguments that, that convinced the Reagan administration to make the kind of silly decision to support an amnesty mm -hmm. was there's a critical mass of people, and it would not right. be humane, nor would it be practical from a resource point uh, to deport them all. And I think what the Biden administration is attempting to do is ensure that there are so many people here the next time that they get enough uh, political mass to be able to propose an amnesty that they can pass it and convince the Republicans and anyone else who might oppose it that this is a good idea because there are just far too many people here right. to deport. Right. And honestly, I mean, it, it's also just part of a broader attempt to fundamentally change the fabric of this nation. We see in every amnesty deal that, you know, the what three, four, five failed attempts since Biden took office, there's always this concern about, well, can we make sure they have, you know, some form of citizenship that includes, always includes voting rights within mm -hmm. eight years, and always kind of an attempt to make sure these individuals get brought into kind of a, you know, a full citizenship fold as quickly as possible so that they can be impactful. It's a political play. I mean, I think everybody everybody knows that and some even admit it at this point. But I think what's really concerning in this particular instance is the willingness to really weaponize and honestly delegitimize the courts in a way to basically say you are no longer, you know, considered in any way independent enforcing the rule of law, enforcing laws as they're written, making sure that, you know, we're staying in compliance with, you know, congressionally passed laws or even regulation passed via the, you know, the executive branch, but instead saying we want you to follow a political agenda that we have. I feel like, at least from what I could find, from what I could research, that's largely unprecedented. You didn't see, uh, you know, President Trump come in here and just fire a bunch of previous uh, judges appointed by Obama and bring in his own guys. You didn't see Obama really do that too much anyway with the Bush administration judges. But it seems to be a new thing to where this is just another political tool and political ploy by the Biden administration to achieve their open borders utopia that they're trying to create. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um 
And I think you hit the nail right on the head. Um, you know, in the Bush administration, there there were accusations, there were attempts to politicize the judge hiring process. Um, I don't think that was accurate. I mm-hmm. think that the Bush administration, like many Republican administrations, uh, had attempted to kind of tighten up and ensure that there were more people with an immigration background right. and, and quite possibly with a prosecutorial background uh, on the court, um, You know, which there's nothing wrong with. I, I mean, a large number of the people sitting on the federal bench in the judicial branch courts are people who are former prosecutors. Right. Um, that's that's a typical path to the bench. Obama attempted to interfere with the courts, but not with the judge appointment process right. to the to the the current extent. It was more with attempting to tell the judges what to do. And right. this whole notion that gang violence and crime and domestic violence could serve as bases for asylum was really born under the Obama administration. The Trump administration is interesting. The, the, the class of judges that I came in with, mm-hmm. that I trained with, um, I would say was divided about evenly in thirds. About a third of the people were people that came from the military and had been JAG mm-hmm. attorneys or military judges. Right. About another third were people who, like me, had a, a background in uh, immigration enforcement mm-hmm. and or uh, experience as private bar attorneys. And about a third were people who um, were people with a lot of immigration experience, but on the alien side. And right. that's even under right. the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because immigration is kind of an unusual area of law. Uh, it's a specialized area of practice. It's complicated. And I think that like a lot of Republican administrations that are committed to the rule of law, the Trump administration went, all right, we're going to staff the court and we're going to staff it with people that know what they're doing. Right. The Biden administration hasn't had any interest in that the mm-hmm. uh, the people who came in afterwards, the assistant chief immigration judge uh, that I was working uh, with at the time that I was terminated, uh, was from Ayuda. Uh, three or four of the people that they hired at the same time, uh, who I met that trained at the Arlington Court, were with extremely leftist organizations. Um, almost all of them had a connection with some kind of. Uh, not, not that there are too many conservative law schools left in the United right. States, but these were people that had, you know, connections with really knee-jerk liberal uh, immigration clinics at law schools and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it, you know, for the longest time, the United States did not have an immigration court. The way that immigration right. cases were reviewed is that there was an attorney who worked for INS Uh, who had to have more than five years' experience, but then would go on a rotating basis as what was called a special inquiry officer. And they Mm -hmm. would essentially sit as an administrative hearings officer and uh, conduct administrative hearings about immigration matters, and they would go back off of the rotation. Now, Mm -hmm. there was a lawsuit about that, and um, I believe it was settled, and that led to the creation of the the immigration court as we know it now. The Board of Immigration Appeals goes back further. I think Mm -hmm. that goes back to Mm -hmm. like the 1950s. Um, And that would review the decisions from the special inquiry officers. Right. Uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals now uh, reviews the decisions that are made by the immigration court. So mm-hmm. it's, I, you know, if you want to give people a genuine hearing on things, 
uh, particularly with something like immigration where people do not have a lot of rights the way that they would in a criminal proceeding right. or even, even mm-hmm. a standard civil proceeding. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's really straightforward. And, I, you know, you've heard me say this many times because we worked together for years. Right. An immigration hearing is like a driver's license revocation hearing. Mm-hmm. Driver's license is not a right. It's a privilege. Yes. And you hold that privilege under the conditions that the government sets. And if you violate those conditions, then you can lose that that mm-hmm. right. We license people to come into the United States. A visa and an admission stamp are a license to be in the United States. And you hold that license pursuant to the conditions the U.S. government sets. If you violate those, then it's a simple question. One, is there enough evidence the government can produce that you have have violated it? And number two, does the law say that you need to be removed or is there some discretion that the court uh, can grant you to enable you to stay? And then when it comes down to the exercise of discretion, Typically, there's a set of standards. So for certain right. things like cancellation of removal, you know, you've got to show good moral character. You've got to show connections to the United States, things of that nature. So it, it's um, there. There has been this attempt by the immigration bar to turn these things into something akin to a death penalty hearing mm-hmm. in a judicial branch court. When the fact is, there really isn't that much at stake. A lot of people are fond of saying, "Well, you know." This is terrible because, you know, these people have a life in the United States and they might be forced to give it up. But what's happening from a legal standpoint and even from a practical standpoint is that people who either never had or who by their own conduct forfeited the right to be in the United States are simply being sent back to the place Mm -hmm. where they have full citizenship rights. There's nothing punitive about it. Exactly. And and honestly, when you get into that, and of course we can feel sorry for those who – May have put down roots here, may have been here for years, uh, but are now being sent back. But part of that is a fundamental misunderstanding of how this whole process works, how a visa works, you know, or, or, you know, or they committed a crime or violated the terms of their visa without giving thought to the consequences of that. And so some of this might just be a need for better educating those who are coming into the country you know, what does this mean? What does this visa mean? You know, what are the criteria you're expected here? Because again, it seems like whether it's this administration or others in the, you know, mass immigration lobby, their goal is to kind of give this idea to embed this concept that if you get into the United States, you have every right to stay here. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. That's why, you know, these review processes, that's why these immigration courts exist. So what kind of looking forward from here knowing that you know the Biden administration has gone this far Mm -hmm. what are they going to weaponize next and what do we need to do what does Congress need to do you know if Republicans take back over in November or otherwise what can be done like what are they going to weaponize next and what needs to be done to stop that from happening well to answer the first question what are they going to weaponize next it's what happened to me should concern everyone because While there are protections available for mm-hmm. ju- federal court judges uh, sitting in judicial branch courts, the fact is there still is an impeachment process for those mm-hmm. judges. And while that has traditionally been extremely difficult to accomplish, I mean, we've now had a situation where Congress attempted to impeach a president who is no longer sitting. Right, right. How do you impeach somebody from an office that they're, they're no longer holding? Yeah. It, it's it's and, absurd. And we're seeing so much chatter, so much talk. You know, the idea of being entertained of either impeaching 
justices on the Supreme Court who have not done anything impeachable other than the side that wants to impeach them didn't like how they were put on the bench or don't like that they're on the bench, as well as this conversation of packing the court. Right. Uh, so do you see that happening, you know, with the immigration, with these immigration courts or even going beyond, uh, you know, whether it's expanding these courts just so you get more favorable judges on the bench or, again, abusing this process to get get anyone who dissents with the party line out of any position of authority? Yeah, not to be dramatic, but I think what happened to me should cause people who care about the Constitution and who take a conservative pr approach to the application of the law because as we have seen, things can change. There was mm -hmm. a set view of uh, presidential impeachment, which changed during the last right, administration. Right. So who's to say, uh, you know, they're kicking out immigration judges today. Is it going to be federal magistrates and then mm -hmm. federal district court judges right. tomorrow? I mean, people say, oh, I don't believe it. It couldn't happen. Um, you kind of said the same thing about this. You could, you know, at least those in the know who are familiar with the process said the same thing about this just a year or two ago. Yes, yes. And, and so it happens. It, it, it does. And I, I think there was something you said before, which I think is a really important point, where you talked about having sympathy. And believe it or not, and mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm not sure there's so many ALA attorneys that listen to our podcast, but if there are any, they're probably going to fall over when I say this. But I do have sympathy for the people mm -hmm. that came in front of me. But the thing is, when you're in a black robe on an elevated bench mm -hmm. in front of a courtroom, you don't have the luxury of engaging in emotional analysis right. of everything that happens in front right. of you. You are honor-bound. Your obligation is to apply the law as written. And <clears throat> excuse me, there is a place for emotion and sympathy, mm -hmm. uh, it comes in when discretion can be exercised. But even mm -hmm. there, you're constrained by the rules for applying the discretion. And one of the things that I think the open borders contingent and the left, the political left in the United States in general, tend to do well is they conflate facts and feelings. Right. And Absolutely. The law is a factual endeavor. What they teach you in law school is how to apply the law to the facts. Now, you can have feelings about what the law says and what mm -hmm. it requires, but as a judge, your obligation is to apply it whether you like it or not. Right. And I think a lot of this has come down to we are looking at these people as individuals and we are saying, oh, this person is telling me a sad story. But mm -hmm. first of all, the sad story is not all the time true as I right. know from right. lengthy experience. <laughs> um, second of all, sometimes even when people do have a sad story, that is not a reason that they should be permitted to remain in the United States. Right, and that's something we've, we've touched on so many times at FAIR, you know, with you know myself and the research department, you used to run the research department here. We've looked so often at what is the maximum scope we can take on to kind of be a welfare system for the rest of the world. We can't help every, you know, sad story that wants to come to the United States. There have been polls that have shown more than a billion people would come to this country today if we would let them because things are more difficult where they're at. They went through difficult situations. The political landscape where they are is changing. But if we're just willy-nilly and kind of let our emotions take over and help it, you know, just if, if you have a bad situation or sad story, come here. We're eventually going to be no better than the places they came from. And we've looked at just mountains of data. We released a lot of studies that kind of back that up. So that's why it is so critical that we have a immigration system in place 
with checks and balances that mm-hmm. looks into you know, what are the constraints we need to put on ourselves right now? Where can we bend those a little bit for special cases, et cetera? You know, again, the good Christian in me would just love to help every single refugee in the world, every single person that needs help in the world. But we don't have that ability to do that, which is why it's so critical that we have an immigration system that is constantly looking and reevaluating itself. Who can we help? What's the best way we do that? And, and most importantly, how are we doing that with the best interests of our country, citizens first, those that came here legally second, everyone else after that? You know, how do we keep in those the interests of those individuals in mind in that order? Well, that is a really important point because if we don't maintain ourselves as mm-hmm. the country that attracted these people, the country whose image spoke to all of these people in the first place, mm-hmm. then we're not going to be able to help them. Right. And we're seeing that in so many European countries right now and Scandinavian countries where they tried to do this, just bring everyone here. Don't vet them. Don't look at what they have to offer. Just bring them here. And now they're seeing, you know, just so many aspects of their society start to fall apart. And it's no longer necessarily the country that's so attractive to those individuals anymore. You're starting to see them go to other places because they've started damaging those countries. So we have to be realistic and careful about how we, you know, approach, you know, the best of our intentions. Well, I think this goes back. You talk about being a Christian. You know I am as well. Um, You know, the Bible, whether you're Christian or not, has a lot of interesting (laughs) historical wisdom. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that Rabbi Hillel always talked about uh, when reviewing biblical sources is in order to be a source of charity, you have Mm -hmm. to keep yourself from becoming a recipient of charity. Exactly. And so what we're not looking at from the standpoint of immigration policy is if we really want to do the most good in the world— Are we placing ourselves in a position where we're going to be so overwhelmed trying to take care of our own and the recent Mm -hmm. additions to the family that we're unable to take care of anyone? And, you know, I genuinely believe that people who are truly fleeing persecution Mm -hmm. should be able to come to the United States. And if they meet the required statutory requirements, then they should be able to stay here. And I mean, you know well from Mm -hmm. looking at my statistics, I had a 96% denial rate Mm -hmm. uh, for asylum claims, but I had a 4% grant rate. Mm -hmm. And the 4% grant rate was because I wasn't opposed to granting asylum if people qualified for it. And when I encountered people who qualified for it, I granted it. But the fact is, because you're in Ecuador or Venezuela or Central America or Mm -hmm. wherever, and your husband beat you up and you didn't want to call the police, you just decided to go mm-hmm. to the United States, that does not qualify you for asylum. Yeah. And if we take everyone who has been the victim of a crime in a foreign country into the United States, we're going to have a massive wave of humanity that's going to come here and we are not going to have the water, the food resources, mm-hmm. the infrastructure to be able to house, feed and keep those people in stable communities, it's just not possible. And that's not because we dislike people from foreign countries. Mm -hmm. That is just the practicality. I live in a house with four bedrooms. That means Mm -hmm. there's only so many family members who can come and stay at Christmas time. (laughs) The other ones have to stay in a hotel because there just isn't enough room for that many people to be in the house. We're seeing that across America now. You know, we we release studies just looking at the impacts of urban sprawl on sensitive ecosystems. I, I go out to places like Phoenix regularly and there's this mountain that you can overlook the whole area. And I like to go and every year look at how like 
what section of desert has been eaten up by houses now. And you're, you're seeing now places like Lake Mead, the Colorado River areas like that, they're pulling so much water that they have a very difficult time keeping the lake levels at, at you know acceptable levels whenever there's a drought. And this is all being fueled by immigration. So, I mean, it's, it's a really difficult topic. And I definitely commend you for the service you did as an immigration judge because you, you had to address and make some of these very, very hard decisions with a bunch of individuals, a bunch of groups out there that are mischaracterizing, you know, why you're doing it, trying to, you know, paint you as a terrible person when in reality you're keeping this bigger picture in mind and just trying to, you know, uh, enforce our laws as they're written so that we can actually help as many people as possible. So, uh, yeah, I think that's great. And I really think this is a, you know, good, a good spot to wrap up this episode. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to Thank come you. on today, Matt. It's great to have you back in the Fair family. Thank you. It's you're good doing to be great back. work over it early, and you'll continue to do that. So for everyone out there listening, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode and learned something new about this really important issue and one that's only going to become more important over time. I want to encourage everyone uh, to listen to our previous episodes if you have the time. We've got something like 60 half-hour episodes online now, so lots of great informative content for your listening pleasure. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever streaming service you use and share it with your colleagues, friends, family. Uh, you can also find out more about FAIR and our mission at www.fairus.org. And we're also on Twitter and Facebook. So until next time, this has been the Understanding Immigration Podcast presented by FAIR. FAIR.